So, I thought the topic for tonight could be how to take our practice uh, everywhere we go, or something like that, into everything we do. And sometimes the way that we are introduced to Dhamma practice is through meditation, a formal kind of uh, sitting uh, practice or walking practice where we uh, maybe pay attention to the breath or some other chosen object and we, we uh, sit in silence with our eyes closed listening to instructions and trying to do that. And while that is a powerful training of the mind, and, and the instructions are actually quite simple, it's not easy to do. For any of you who've tried it, you know. It's really hard to pay attention to the present moment's experience, even something as simple as the breath. And so we have to ask ourselves, if we're really interested in why is this so difficult, well, why is this so difficult? Well, it's difficult because our minds are not prepared to pay attention. We have restless, uh, rambunctious, uh, unruly minds, and they're uh, untrained. And in fact, we don't know our minds very well. And so when we sit down to train our mind, what do we see? Well, mostly we don't see. We don't see. You know, we're just, <laughs> we're just floundering around, you know, and every so often we come out of a daydream and we think, either, wow, that was a good set, you know, <laughs> didn't notice anything, or, wow, this is terrible, my mind's a mess. <laughs> well, in, in, uh, in Asia, where a lot of these meditation traditions come from, not all, but many, and certainly the ones that we uh, teach here, the understanding of the development of the mind and the, the liberation of the mind that the highest teachings aim for is that the meditation that we're doing when we sit on a cushion and try to watch our breath and other experiences arise, that's the peak of practice. What is often not spoken, not acknowledged, not even mentioned is all the foundation practices that make it possible to do that effectively. So I wanted to speak a little bit, well, all night, well, for, I mean, for as long as I'm here, about those foundation practices, because sometimes when we hear the teachings of uh, liberation, it can seem pretty far out. You know, it can seem pretty uh, esoteric. It can seem pretty exotic. It can seem pretty remote, actually like Nibbana, Enlightenment, hello, uh, where do I get it? And in fact, you know, most of of our spiritual life is all about being, you know, learning how to be at ease with ourselves in the situations that we find ourselves in in life. It's not to get ourselves out of this situation into a monastery or into a cave or into some, some 
contorted position in trying to be happy. It's about bringing our presence of mind and our understanding to what we do. And what we do mostly is uh, socialize with our family, our friends, and our co-workers. So that is you know, the arena of most of our preparation work for the formal practice of developing uh, the understanding that frees the mind. So while I and Michael Narayan and Larry and uh, I, I think everyone who comes here teach within the Buddhist tradition and take freely or borrow freely from other spiritual and psychological and personal growth traditions, primarily our teachings come from or are rooted in the Buddhist teachings. But we should understand that the Buddha did not teach Buddhism. The Buddha taught the Dhamma. And the Dhamma is uh, the way things are. It's the truth. It's how it is for you right now and hereafter. So I, if, I, if, I, if I asked you, how is it for you right now? Maybe you'd say, I'm a little warm, I'm a little restless, I'm wondering what this guy's talking about. Okay, warm, restless, and wondering, those are all dhammas. That's the way it is for you right now. That's the truth for you right now. The Buddha taught the way to the truth, the way to the dhamma, the way to the way it is for you. But sometimes when we hear the teachings of the Buddha, it seems pretty out there. And we think, wow, I, I don't know if I can even believe all that stuff that they say, let alone understand it, let alone believe it. But when we look at these qualities that are called the paramis that I want to speak about tonight, well, let's look at these qualities for a minute. Generosity, morality, renunciation, wisdom, energy, patience, truthfulness, resolution, loving-kindness, equanimity. Which of those is Buddhist? Well, it's pretty clear that those are qualities that, well, they're not particularly Buddhist or Christian or Muslim or Jewish. or They're, they're qualities or capacities of mind or heart that all human beings have. And in fact, they're not so esoteric, they're not so obscure, they're not so remote that we have trouble recognizing them. Is there anybody that doesn't understand generosity or patience or loving kindness? Of course, we all do. But what's so unique about the Buddha's teachings is that he recognized that these are the forces in the mind which, when developed, prepare the mind for liberating insight. Until these forces or qualities of the heart are developed, the mind is contaminated. The mind has got some wrong understanding. It's got some wrong uh, energy that will prevent liberating understanding from arising in the mind. So in the Buddha's understanding, 
these practices or these qualities or practices to develop these qualities are the foundation practices which are essential for (coughs) developing both calm or concentration of mind and insight or understanding of mind. These paramis are called the forces of purity. Paramis is the Pali word, the language that the Buddha's teachings are recorded in. And parami means uh, purity or purification or force of purity. And primarily they are forces that purify the mind of greed, hatred, and delusion or attachment, aversion, confusion, any form of them. And it is these forces of greed, hatred, and delusion that most cause us to suffer, to be unhappy, to be distressed, to be stressed, to be, you know, not at ease with ourselves or others. And so to the extent that we can develop these forces, we purify our mind or we purify our heart of the forces that make us unhappy, that contribute to tension in our life, tension in our relationships. We could say that these forces, these qualities known as the paramis, are really the qualities of all good human beings. When you think for a minute, Just think for a minute of someone that you really uh, revere, someone that you have a lot of respect for, someone that you consider a really really special person in your life or however. If you think about them and then you think about what what is it about them that makes them so special, so unique or so such a good human being? Why are they so lovable? Why are they so... Why is it easy to respect them or appreciate them? If you look carefully, you'll probably find some of these qualities, those who are generous, those who are loving, those who are understanding or patient. Those are the kinds of beings, those are the people that we appreciate in our life, that we can really see that they are of uh, they're valuable in our life. They're they're valuable in our communities. And that's not to dismiss ourselves, or that's not to uh, kind of exclude ourselves from consideration. Also, because each one of us has been generous. Each one of us has been patient. Each one is each one of us has been loving and all the other qualities. But, as we know all too well, each one of us has been impatient and stingy and unloving or hateful or irritated and unkind and not always tell the truth. So while these qualities are available and they rest in the mind as potentialities, in fact, they're not yet fully developed. But this is our opportunity because 
however you find yourself now, whatever the, uh, the matrix of these qualities in your life, it's not fixed. It's not who you are uh, inevitably. It's not how you'll be for the rest of your life. Now, I, I, don't, I don't recognize many of you, some of you, but uh, any of you who knew me very well, you'd know <clears throat> my lifetime practice is patience. Uh, I was born with the impatient gene. And uh, it's just my, it's like my default setting where, you know, it's just, def- uh, impatience just comes up very easily in my mind. You know, when things are just, well, they shouldn't be happening that way. You know, I, I get impatient and that's my, you know, that's kind of like my tripwire. I just get into impatience. But what is easy to do, but we all should be careful is that just because we're frequently impatient doesn't mean that we're an impatient person. You see the difference? I may be impatient 15 times a day, but there's 200,000 times a day I'm not. Okay, so rather than focusing on the qualities that, you know, maybe are habitual, are deeply conditioned, uh, arise frequently, cause us a lot of distress, they aren't fixed. It's not the core of our personality, so to speak. They're, it's, a, it's, a, it's a momentary perception that I'm impatient. Okay, I fret and stew and kind of mm-hmm, look at the watch and pace and and then it's over. And most of the time I'm not impatient, but it comes easily. Am I an impatient person? <coughs> no. But sometimes we can get fixated on the qualities that cause us the most trouble in life, the most distress, the most unhappiness. And we forget to acknowledge all of the good qualities that we have and that we share and that we act on in our life. So I think it's important to carry this little piece of paper around with you, post it on your bathroom mirror, have a copy on your desk, where you can remind yourself of these are the qualities to be practiced as the foundation for your happiness. When I say that these are the forces of purity and they purify the mind of uh, attachment or greed, they purify the mind of aversion or hatred of any kind, and they purify the mind of delusion, confusion, misunderstanding, I'm really talking about you know, the, the Buddha's Noble Eightfold Path, which is the path of purification. And the path of purification, the Eightfold Path, is essentially three trainings. There's the training in sila, the second uh, parami, which is to purify your speech and purify your actions of greed, hatred, and delusion. When you purify your speech and you purify your actions, you don't speak carelessly, you don't speak falsely, you don't speak roughly, coarsely, uh, you don't speak in a way that harms yourself or others, and neither do you act that way. Well, this purification this force of purity in the mind, in the heart, 
is the foundation for happiness and harmony in our personal relationships. Think about it for a minute. How much misery we cause ourselves because we speak carelessly or we speak falsely or we you know act in ways that you know threaten the happiness or peace of others wow just today no yesterday i had a discussion with my wife and she was pointing out that in a meeting that we had i'm teaching at the meditation center in Mass- in, in Barrie now in a meeting that we had with the other teachers, I was a little <clears throat> rambunctious in my judgment and, well, not condemnation, but vociferous disapproval of, <laughs> of someone's behavior. And while it was true, somebody was really acting out inappropriately, and I was probably right in my judgment. What I didn't take into account was that one of the other teachers is a good friend of the person that I was, you know, speaking unkindly of. And while it was true, and I might have been appropriate in sharing that with others, I wasn't being sensitive enough to my co-teacher. And so out of the carelessness of my speech, there arose some tension in our relationship. You ever had that experience? <laughs> you know, I mean, it's not, this is not rocket science. I mean, we all, we all have this experience. Well, we have to be on guard for it all the time. Well, when we understand that these are the qualities of mind that when not developed will cause us suffering both within our own mind and body and within our relationships with others then when we remember this we can we can say ah here's a place to practice practice some patience or to practice some truthfulness or to practice some understanding or loving kindness or whatever uh, quality we see is necessary so the Eightfold Path, the Noble Eightfold Path that the Buddha taught for uh, realizing the truth, the way things are, is the purification of speech and, and behavior, which is sila, the purification of mind, which is samadhi. Well, that has many qualities, but it's basically mindfulness, loving kindness, understanding, uh, all of the wholesome qualities of mind. And then the third training of the Eightfold Path is the purification of understanding. And that's where meditation, the formal uh, insight practice or vipassana practice, aims at purifying our understanding. Well, to purify your understanding, you have to have a mind that is capable of withstanding the truth. And I say withstanding the truth because... Let me, let me just ask you, how many of you here have made a commitment to yourself that you will always speak the truth? <clears throat> any? Okay. How many of you here are liars? Okay. 
And a lot of people didn't raise their hand. <laughs> you know, it's either one or the other. <laughs> well, that's the truth. So, to, to, to really purify our understanding, we have to be willing to withstand the truth about ourselves. And that's what these practices do. These practices bring the truth of our mind into uh, view on a, on a pretty ongoing basis so that we can see, oh, th- this is the way it is. This, is. this is the way my mind is. Not very pure right now. Mm-mm-mm-mm. Okay, hey, it, it, nobody's, nobody's going to shame you. You're, you're not going to get strike, struck by lightning or you know, there's not going to be something come down and just say, <clears throat> bad boy, bad girl. It's our own mind that tortures us. You know, it's we who know when we're not being kind, when we're being a little careless, when we're being impatient because we're not getting our own way. It's we who know that. And it's our minds that cause us suffering. It's not somebody else. Well, there might be other people causing you suffering, but you cause yourself far more suffering. Your untamed mind causes far more suffering than others in your life. And so it's these practices which help you begin to see your mind. Is there anybody today who today did not have the opportunity to practice patience? I was driving in and the traffic coming in was horrendous. I, I, it took me at least a half hour longer than I thought. It was just bumper to bumper. Back. It's really, I mean, I'm, I'm sure you all have had the opportunity to be impatient with someone, with some impersonal thing or with some personal behaviors, right? Did you get impatient today? Maybe. Upeka or equanimity. Equanimity is the opposite of the reactive mind, the mind that gets reactive to, you know, somebody says something and you just go ballistic internally, even if not externally. Maybe you don't say it like you're off your rocker, but you're thinking it. Well, your mind is already not in balance. Your mind is reactive. You're the one who's suffering with that. Not speaking it is good, but not feeling it is better. (laughs) Right? You know, just stuffing it, you know. (laughs) Well, maybe it'll just keep you from having a difficult relationship with that person, but your mind is uh, torturing you, causing you suffering. And so developing the understanding of the benefit of a balanced mind, equanimity. There's a lot of uh, value. You know, we live in a hot world. And I don't mean global warming. I mean, it's hot. You know, you just, you just watch any TV program or any news. or Why, well, you don't have to. I mean, it's everywhere. It's like, it is like the world is encouraging us to be reactive. You know, you've got to have an opinion about things. You've got to pick sides. You've got to end the selection season. Well... No comment. But anyway, you know, it, you know, there's so much polarization in our life. And, you know, we're, we're, we're pulled and pushed 
about by the social, political, economic commentators of our life. While it may be necessary to hear the information and to ultimately make decisions, you know, weighing and evaluating what it is we have to do and make decisions, best decisions aren't made in a reactive in, in mind. Best decisions are made in a calm, balanced mind that can really take in what it is that has to be weighed here and make the decision. But to have, a balance, to have that capacity to have a balanced mind, a non-reactive mind, takes training. It takes knowing the value of a non-reactive mind and then training to have a non-reactive mind. One thing that they do in uh, in uh, Asia, where I was practicing for a number of years, is because there's not nearly as much written material as there is here in the West, and uh, things like that. They they often they when giving Dharma talks. Uh, the the teachers or the monks or nuns will be talking, and then they'll they'll say a quote from the Buddha. They'll say a line from the Buddha. If beings knew as I know the benefit of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. And then they ask the audience to say it three times. Why? Because reading, you know, it it, it gets it into your mind a little bit, but when you say it, it gets into your mind a little more. And when you say it in a group. It's even much more powerful. So what I'd like to do this evening for practice is uh, to imbibe the Dharma together. Okay? Here's what we'll do. I will pronounce, or I will announce the, the quality, dana, generosity, and then let's read it together. Just one time. We don't have to do it three times. Just one time. So that, you know, we all know that we all heard these teachings. Okay? So dana, generosity. If beings knew as I know the benefit of generosity, they would not let an opportunity go by without sharing. Sila, morality. Virtue has non-remorse as its benefit and reward. Non-remorse has gladness as its benefit and reward. Gladness has joy as its benefit and reward. Joy has serenity as its benefit and reward. Serenity has happiness as its benefit and reward. Happiness has concentration as its benefit and reward. Concentration has insightful understanding as its benefit and reward. Insightful understanding has non-attachment as its benefit and reward. Non-attachment has liberation as its benefit and reward. In this way, virtue leads step by step to the highest. Nekama, renunciation. Renunciation implies the strong wish to free oneself, not only from life's immediate sorrows, but from the seemingly unending cycle of conditioned existence. With this renunciation comes a heartfelt weariness and disillusionment 
with the endless quest for gratification, approval, profit, and status. Panya, wisdom. Wisdom inclines towards the good, but is not attached to it. It shies away from what is not good, but has no aversion to it. Wisdom recognizes the difference between skillful and unskillful, and it clearly sees the undesirability of the unskillful. Virya, energy. No one succeeds without effort. Mind at peace is not your birthright. Those who succeed owe their liberation to perseverance. Kanti, patience. Patience is the supreme virtue. Satcha, truthfulness. Better than a thousand useless words is one simple word that brings peace. Adetana, resolution. There are the four resolves. The resolve for wisdom, the resolve for truth, the resolve for generosity, and the resolve for peace. One should not neglect wisdom, should preserve truth, should cultivate generosity, and should train in peace. Metta, loving-kindness. Hatred never ceases by hatred, but by love alone. This is the eternal law. Upeka, equanimity. The winds of circumstance blow across emptiness. Whom can they harm? Did you recognize your strength among these qualities? Do you know, did you recognize which of these qualities you have some development of? And did you recognize which of these qualities are a little bit uh, weak in your, in your, well, were there any that weren't? <laughs> no, we do have we, have, we have these qualities. What would it take What would it take to make these qualities the default setting of your mind? Uh-huh. What was? Yeah. Well, here it is. I'm asking you the question because that's what it takes to become awake. And this is what the Buddha, as the one who is awake, undertook was lifetimes to perfect these qualities so that they became the default setting of the mind. So that whenever there was an opportunity, it was patience that arose rather than impatience. That it was generosity that arose rather than attachment or miserliness or stinginess. That it was truthfulness that arose when there was maybe the impulse to be a little less than truthful. It might seem, in any one case, not so difficult. You know, we could, we could catch ourselves and practice being a little more generous, practice being a little more patient. But it takes catching it every time to make it a default setting, to make it the, the impulse that arises automatically given 
uh, the, the, the conditions that we, that we face every day. Each one of these qualities is developed through mindfulness. Because it is mindfulness that recognizes the, 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 the opportunity to be patient or the opportunity to be truthful or the opportunity to be generous. I've, I've, I've held classes where uh, I would hand out exercises for these paramis. And one of the exercises for generosity is I asked people to uh, keep, a, keep a record of all the opportunities to be generous that they had in a month. That means all those appeals that you get in the mail, all the people that you pass on the street, panhandlers or whatever, and, and other, other opportunities. And now these are not gifts and these are not things where, you know, you give something and you get something back. And it's just pure, just being generous, no expectation of return. Hundreds. I mean, I'm sure you, I'm sh- you know, I'm not alone in getting hundreds, am I? I mean, it's, there's just lots of opportunity. What do we do with them? It's an appeal. It's not that we, maybe we cannot, just cannot possibly respond to every appeal, appeal even with a quarter. It just, we don't have enough time. But every time we say no, it conditions non-generosity in the mind, in the heart. Every time. We say no. And it's so automatic. I mean, I, I don't even bother opening them. I just, you know, you stand at the post office. But every one of them is strengthening the habit of non-generosity. So what I did is I, I, I suggested that people uh, collect these. Or one, one student said that she collected the, all of them for a month. Collected them. Saved, saved every one of them for a month. And at the end of the month, she and her husband sat down and went through every one and really considered whether to and how much to offer or to give, to share, to, to, uh, to practice that generosity and made the choice consciously. It's not that we can't make the choice to be not generous. We can. But we should do it consciously, knowing, okay, this time, this situation, just not possible. But, when we make the choice to consciously practice generosity, to acknowledge that and to really take joy in our willingness and our capacity and our, and our intention to be generous. Because these practices, if, if undertaken with awareness, with presence of mind, lead to happiness. I'll give you a story. I'll tell you a story. Years ago, I was living in Massachusetts. Oh, Massachusetts. Out in western Massachusetts, and um, I read about uh, a potter who lived nearby who had a Japanese tea house uh, built on his property, and uh, during the summer months, he invited someone from Japan to come and do the tea ceremony. So I thought, oh, that's, 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 that's cool. I'm going to go to tea ceremony, see what that's like. So I went, and I just uh, went to the tea ceremony. And I wandered around this, uh, it's like an old farm. Uh, it was well kept. And the potter's studio and his workroom and the, the display rooms and the, all the museum quality pieces. And it was just beautiful. It was just 
wonderful gardens and, and beautiful pottery, and it was just very subduing and serene. It was just really nice. So the potter wasn't there. I, I didn't meet him. But I so appreciated the experience of just kind of being there, and the tea ceremony was free, and the pottery was too expensive to buy. But what I could do and did do at the time was I used to bake my own bread, meat, big bread. Every week I'd bake my bread, six loaves. And so I, it was something I was proud of, so I took the potter a loaf of bread. So I just, you know, I got some joy out of being in his <coughs> sphere of beauty, and so I offered him something that I had. Well, later he invited me to uh, help him fire his wood-fired kill. So he works, he, you know, he does his pottery for, for three months, and then every three months, every season, he fires his kill. And it's an old, uh, some Japanese wood-fired thing. It takes a day and a half of just throwing wood into the, the, the different chambers to get the temperature up high enough to do the glaze. And so he would start the fire, and he'd do it for 10 or 12 hours, and then he needed somebody to carry on while he got some sleep for a few hours. Then he'd come back and finish it off. So he asked me if I'd come help him. So I said, sure. So, you know, you're standing there throughout the night from, I think I was about from 10 o'clock at night till 6 in the morning. You're just throwing sticks in this, you know, just throwing sticks in the fire to keep the, get the fire up, get the temperature up. After it was finished off, he lets it cool down for a couple of days, and then he empties the kill. And he said, look, when, when it cools down, we're going to empty the kill. You come by, and you can take your pick. Well, not really. You could take, I'm going to pick out all the tens, he, he said, and you can have the pick of anything that's left, which was most. So we unloaded it, and he picked out all the museum-quality stuff, and then I picked a bowl that I liked. It was great. I, you know, it was a, it was. It was just a, a plate-sized bowl, and at the time I was uh, going and doing retreats at Insight Meditation Center out, out, in, out near Worcester, and so I would take this bowl with me every time I went on retreat. And so all my meals were in this bowl, and I would eat out of it every day, and it was just, it was just the right size. It would hold a meal's worth, and, and it, was, it was nice looking, and so for years I used that bowl. I put a lot of investment in that bowl. I put a lot of attachment, really, into that bowl. <laughs> That's what I did. I got really attached. But it was, you know, it had a lot of mana in, in Hawaii. We say it had a lot of mana. It had a lot of power in that bowl. Well, I went off. At one point, I made a decision to go to Burma, and I packed all my stuff up, put it in the attic at the meditation center, went off to Burma for five years, during which time I practiced. And when I returned from Asia... I had so much gratitude for my Dharma teachers here that I looked through all my stuff to see if there was something I could give them. So I came across this bowl. I said, wow, this, is, this has got so much of me in it. I said, I, I really want to give this to one of my teachers. So I, I did. One of my teachers had just had a house built, so I offered her this bowl. And to me it was like, wow, giving up part of my life, I mean, really. And she appreciated it. She put it up on her mantle or something for, you know, in her new house, and that, I thought that was appropriate. And then, you know, I lost track. I mean, I didn't, you know, 
a few years later, three or four years later, I was invited to uh, a meal with uh, another Dharma student who was a great supporter of the, of, of the Dharma. And uh, this woman lived very simply, very uh, spartanly, really. And uh, we, we had a little meal in the back garden. And then as it got cooler in the evening, we came into her house, and she had a like a little... Uh, living room, dining room, kitchen room that was where she lived and there was nothing in it. I mean, it was just a table with nothing on it, a few plants. And then over in one corner was a little two-person couch on one side of a coffee table and a one-person chair on the other side of the table. So she said, "We we can continue our conversation over here. So I went and I sat down on the couch and she sat down in the chair and I looked on the table, and there's that bowl. <laughs> so I said, oh, that's a nice bowl you have there. And she said, yes. She says, uh, yes, one of my teachers uh, gave that to me. I like that bowl a lot. And I said, you know the history of that bowl? <laughs> <laughs> and she said, no. She just got it from a teacher. And I said, so I told her the story. Well, she was like, oh, my God, I, you know. At first, at first I thought, oh, my teacher didn't like it. Gave it away, you know, like. (laughs) But then I realized I didn't think that was what. I think she appreciated it and valued it in a way and wanted to to give it to this other person as a gift that she could then appreciate. Now, think about it. Here's this bowl, you know, $40. You know, if you went and bought it, $40. But the potter, out of his appreciation and joy, gave it to me. He's happy, I'm happy. I used it for years, and out of my appreciation for it, I gave it to my teacher. I was happy, she was happy. She had it on display in her house, she was happy, others who saw it had some reaction to it. Later, she gave it to someone, she was happy, they were happy. That bowl has caused more happiness (laughs) than you could buy with $40. Why? Well, because it was given freely. It was given. Uh, it was. It was. It was through the practice of generosity that all this happiness came about. If we don't recognize where our happiness comes from, we'll miss the simple, the simplest things to do to make ourselves happy. And it's not. I mean, it's not hard to be generous. It's not hard to be truthful. It's hard to remember to be generous. It's hard to remember to be truthful. It's hard to remember to be loving or patient instead of just, you know, self-righteously indignant about something. And so it's, it's, it's through awareness, through, through awakening our recognition of the opportunity to be kind, to be loving, to be truthful, to be generous, to be sensitive. And that's all. It's awakening the recognition of the opportunity. That's the practice. But it's mindfulness that recognizes the opportunity. That's what mindfulness is. Mindfulness means to remember. It doesn't mean to sit with your eyes closed and pay attention to your breath. That's not mindfulness. Well, that's not the only way to develop mindfulness. Mindfulness is to recognize 
presence of mind, to, 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 to recognize this moment for what it is. Here's the opportunity to be patient. Here's the opportunity to be truthful. Here's the opportunity to be not reactive. Here's the opportunity to be determined or, or aditana, that resoluteness, resolute in what we need to do. These are not esoteric practices. These are not even Buddhist practices. They're the practices of all good human beings. And every one of us has innumerable opportunities every day to practice all of them. If we remember, if we recognize, here's the opportunity. And that's why we practice mindfulness. That's why we develop mindfulness. So that we can recognize the opportunities as they arise each day to plant the seed of happiness. If you, if you miss the opportunity, more likely you plant the seed of you know, unhappiness. That's why we practice mindfulness. Okay. Now we're going to do a little survey. There's about 60 people here, maybe. Okay. What do you think among yourself, among these people here, which do you think is the quality we most think we have? Which one? Do we, do we generally think we're more generous or do we think we're more wise? Do we think we're more truthful? You have a question or comment? This is Cambridge. We're wise. We're wise guys. You're what? You're wise? You think you're wise? Ah, wise guys. Okay, well... Energy. Energy. Well, you do have to have a lot of energy to live in the city. Moral? In the city? Okay. I guess you have to be. I guess you... I mean, you're living in the, in the center of possibilities. <laughs> <laughs> I guess you have to be, <laughs> be moral. Patience. Patience? Yeah, because we always have to wait. And so we have to learn to wait and not... Fret and stew. Do something wait. constructive and wholesome while we wait. Waiting is wholesome and constructive. You don't have to do anything but wait. <laughs> Patiently. Right? Any other uh, comments? We're going to take a vote here. You know... Well, no, it, you're answering about your perception of what we, we think is our most. What do you think we think is the most? I better think about this. Let's see. Renunciation? Hmm, I don't know. Moral generation, loving kindness, going to be patience, truthfulness. Truthfulness. Huh. Okay, truthfulness. You know, we live in a society of deception. And I don't mean just the current administration, because there might be some Republicans here. I'd be surprised, but there might be. <laughs> Okay, but, you know, it is totally acceptable in our culture to be dishonest, to be deceptive. It's our conditioning. We see it everywhere, all the time, not just political arena, but in advertising, in, it's just rampant in our culture. And we're conditioned by that. And when we're conditioned by this it's permission to be deceptive, to be dishonest. 
that's how we'll be unless we recognize that it causes us to be unhappy. Not just because other people are being deceptive, but when we're deceptive or dishonest, it's our heart that's agitated. Yes, we can get agitated when other people are jerking us around or you know, lying to our face. But when we engage in that behavior, we, it's our heart that's agitated. But we have total permission. We're encouraged, in fact, in our culture. You know, so just being a good American may not be good enough. Anyway, so should we take a, should we take a poll? Everybody gets to vote once. <laughs> We're Democrats, right? <laughs> Everybody gets to vote once. Okay, Democratic. So how many think that our strongest quality is generosity? How many think that in this group, generosity is the strongest of these qualities? One. Two. Okay. Morality. How many believe that morality is really strong among this group? Let me see your hands. Let's see. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. Eight. Okay, so somebody's got to keep track. Can we go back? Generosity is... <laughs> Can we go back? Okay, how many do we have for generosity? Three. So two plus one. Three for generosity. Are, are you asking what we think we are? Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, what you think this group is. Maybe I should just say, which one's strongest? For, which one are you most? Okay, okay, okay. Back up. Which is your strongest quality? Okay? That's what you want to know. Okay. Which is your strongest quality, the one that is most developed for you. Do you have a comment? This is hard. Um, <laughs> our uh, best friend is Frank because we're Muslims, so we don't want to say what our best quality is. Would you, uh, I didn't get that. Say it again. I think it would be good because, you know, uh, because the next question is going to be which one is <laughs> not your best. So which, <laughs> okay, best quality, generosity. Okay. Best of the ten, huh? Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Ten of you. Ten. Good. Morality. Who's, which, is, which of you has morality as your strongest quality of these ten? One, two. Okay, two. Which have nekama, renunciation? Well, let me, let me just ask. Let me, just, let me just point out. We don't have a lot of role, model, role models for renunciates in our culture. There are just not a lot. But for, so anyone who has renunciation as a well-developed quality may become the role model of this local sangha here. So <laughs> how many have renunciation as a strongly developed? Wow. Relative. Rel- you know, relative, I know. It's all relative. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten. Wow, ten. Okay, wisdom. The wise guys. Okay, how many have wisdom as their strong, most developed quality? One. You don't have to be ashamed of this. Be proud of your good qualities. I mean, not proud, but be one, two, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. How many have energy? Okay, 
One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, and me. Twenty-one. <laughs> Twelve. Okay, patience. How many have patience as their strongest, most developed quality of these? Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve. Thirteen. Thirteen. I can't believe it. How many have truthfulness as their strongest quality and commitment, something they're deeply committed to? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight. It's good. Resoluteness, aditana, means determination, not in a not in a striving, pushing, aggressive sense, but just resoluteness, get the job done. One, two, three, four. Whoa, wait a minute. One, two, three, four, five, six. They're all on this side of the room. <laughs> six. Metta, loving kindness. Okay, how many have metta, loving kindness as their default setting? Well, how about strongly developed? One, two, three. Three. That's okay, that's okay. I could have you vote ten times, but you get... <laughs> equanimity, equanimity, non-reactivity, balanced mind. <laughs> One, two, two. Okay. Which one is highest? Which one is highest? Patience. I can't believe it. That's my weakest one. The what? <laughs> Yeah, so much for the truthfulness, God. Okay, let's go. Let's let's uh, let's get real now. Which ones? Uh, which one do we need the most help and encouragement and practice with? Okay. Yeah, in yourself. Which one is your weakest? You know that you really realize you 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 could use a lot of guidance, a lot of help, a lot of practice. You you need mm, not your default setting. Okay, generosity. One. Wow, man, this is the winner. I mean, the loser. <laughs> One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen, fifteen, sixteen, seventeen, eighteen. Ooh, ooh, wow. Okay, how many morality have weak, weak morality? Let's not say you're, you know, sinful, but, you know, <laughs> I, I saw one person raise a hand quick. <laughs> It's okay, one. Okay. It's okay, it's okay. Honesty is a foundation. Renunciation. How many are really weak in renunciation? Now, the opposite of renunciation is indulgent, in case you didn't know. (laughs) You know, one. Perplexity. That's not one. Okay. One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. Renunciation. Wow. Okay. Panya, wisdom. How many have weak wisdom, weak understanding? We just, mm, kind of deluded, kind of going through life in a fog. Mm-hmm. <laughs> one, two, wait, one, two, three, four, five, six. And how many don't know? <laughs> okay, six, wisdom. Okay, weary energy. How many are slugs? Sloths, sloth and toppers, you know, really sleeping many hours a day. Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Some are so tired they can't get their hand up. Nine, okay. Okay, Kanti, patience. How many are really weak, 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 weak in patience? Okay, one, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine, ten, eleven, twelve, thirteen, fourteen. The winner so far. 
Okay, 14. Wow, this is interesting. Okay, such a truthfulness. How many have truthfulness that's, you know, weak commitment to the truth? One. Is that true? Okay, okay. Okay, is it? Uh, you're telling the truth. Okay, one. One, huh? Oh, my goodness. One. Okay. Uh, resoluteness. How many, uh, you know, Aditana. How many are wishy-washy, that means? <laughs> How many have weak, weak commitment to uh, getting things done? One, two, three. Okay. Metta, loving kindness. How many have more aversion, meaning judgment, cynicism, criticism, frustration, disappointment, stuff like that, than loving kindness, huh? anger, hatred? One, two, three, three. Okay. Uh, I got them all. We can <laughs> Equanimity. How many are very react, more reactive than balanced? Huh? One, two, three, four, five, six, seven, eight, nine. Okay. No, Donna. Generosity. There are more people needing the practice of generosity than all the rest. Then patience and renunciation are tied for second. <laughs> Followed by, you know what? We'll leave this here for Michael, Narayan, and Larry. <laughs> I'll send over the homework assignments. You could, you know, we can form little practice groups together. Those, those who really need to practice generosity, those 18 of you can meet with those 10 of you who really got it together. And maybe, maybe you can learn from each other. Huh? Okay. Now it's question and answer time, period. I guess if anybody wants to leave, you can leave. Let's see. 8.30. Question and answers begin. If you, want, uh, if you want to leave, you're certainly free to leave. Uh, if you want to stay, then we can have a period for some questions and answers. Sure. Yeah. What's your name? Anya. Anya brought up a good point that, uh, you know, to practice generosity skillfully, you need to be wise. You need to know how to practice generosity skillfully. Or, or if you have more wisdom, you know, you bring up a good point because actually all of these are interrelated. You know, and of course, anything that we practice, we can practice rightly or we can practice wrongly. And there's plenty of ways to practice generosity wrongly. You know, we, we, you know, we just don't have a pure heart. We give something that's of no value. We give something inappropriately to, to people who won't appreciate it or whatever. And we may practice generosity in a way that doesn't make us happy. Well, these practices are, are to make us happy. So we, we, we begin practicing any of them with the best understanding we have. But if we pay attention, okay, now when I practice generosity this way or when I practice patience this way, is this a wise way? You know, we evaluate it. We, we pay attention so that we see, what am I going into this with? What is the experience? What do I get out of it? What, do I, what is the understanding I get out of practicing in this way? And by paying attention, we develop the wisdom or the understanding of how to practice each of these more skillfully. So it's not that wisdom is a specific thing you got to learn. Wisdom is useful in everything we do. Do we understand what we're doing? 
why we're doing it. Do we understand the consequences of it for ourselves, for others? And can we, can we see what the effect is on ourselves and others and then modify that in the future, do things differently in the future in order to improve, our, through understanding, to improve our practice? Yeah, so it's all about paying attention and all about learning about ourselves. We do these not to kind of like give ourselves, you know, an A or anything like that. And it's not that anybody's going to be sitting in judgment. We do it in order to understand ourselves because it's through understanding that we are going to come to uh, to live in harmony with ourselves. It's because we don't understand ourselves. You know, we act out out of deeply unconscious, habituated conditioning. And we don't understand ourselves. It's by understanding ourselves that we're then able to live in peace with ourselves and in harmony with others. So any of these practices that you undertake is ultimately to understand something about ourselves. Both the wholesome behaviors and, and attitudes and understandings and the unwholesome, those that cause understanding what causes us to suffer as well as what causes us to be happy. Yeah. Um, I want to make a comment and ask you a question. I'd like to stay on this concept of generosity. Uh, I, I think that, you know, you talked about, and then, you know, you talked about the donation to different things. I think one of the greatest things that people really have to give one another is of themselves to someone else. Yeah. And I think that being an empath, having empathy for people and being empath, em, empath, em, empathic, 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 towards someone else is really critically important. I mean, to me, that is one of the really great parts of of, 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 the, of a fuller concept of generosity. Uh, whether it's being in line where everybody's impatient, and the poor girl behind or the man behind the counter is carried as hell, and you simply smile at them and say. You know, you're doing a hell of a job under a difficult circumstance. To me, that is the kind of thing that, that yeah. I think makes for a better definition of generosity. That, yeah. was, my, that was my question. Yeah. That's true. Ultimately, you know, practicing generosity, we often think of practicing generosity as letting go of our personal stuff, like my bowl. Or letting you know, make it, letting go of some money to support something, but actually, practicing generosity is letting go of your self-absorption, being absorbed in yourself. Because if you give something to someone, even time, even the time of day, you know, that's it. You you're giving up your self-absorption. Self, you know, it's all about me. You know, and that's the one of the hardest things to give up. You know, is that self. Centered, you know, seeking so for much, self so gratification. Much so that in retailing today, which is a big multi-billion dollar business in America, businesses have become mindful of the fact that people do not have their time poor. So how can they get their money in the time of time that people have to give to do a circumstance? So time was a great thing, as you said. The the question I would like to ask, the other thing I would kind of like to address is, I've developed. I've been, first of all, I want to thank you very much for coming. I enjoyed your talk. I would have walked here from Hingham tonight to hear from, hear, you, hear from you. I like the way you present things. And, and it's been very meaningful in helping me to make really solid, positive changes in my day-to-day life. 
I mean, I don't retire from business because my business every day, which has been my entire life, you know, adult life, I've been in my own business, is a crucible. You know, I can walk away from a lot of circumstances that provide the impatience and all these other things, but I don't walk away because I'm learning how to, to deal with it better. Sure. And that's why I don't give it up. But I've developed a thing on my own called reactivity alert. Reactivity alert. Alert, yeah. It's like those things years ago when we were living in the old neighborhoods and the fire engines were going to go out and they beat that big thing. So suddenly I'm in a circumstance because I have a conditioned mind that's very reactive. Unlike the rest of us, huh? <laughs> well, no, I would win Olympic gold medals. Yeah. We have whole families have come out, families have come dysfunctionally apart because of it. But in any case, I've made a lot of progress. So sometimes when I'm in a circumstance, and as like I'm now getting animated, I'm talking faster, and voice is going up, I have a thing that says, reactivity alert. Yeah. And then, that's good. You know, I can just get a hold of it. It's mindfulness at the moment. Yeah, that's your equanimity practice. I like that. Yeah, yeah. If you're just alert to reactivity, then you'll be a little more. Thing happened, and I've got to tell you, um, I was, I was, I was off the end of the whole universe. I was white knuckle. One end of the spectrum, we say. Oh, and I, it's been the worst circumstance, you know, that I've had in a long time. And you know, I guess my question is, it sounds like I'm on the right path with mm. being mindful and concept of. Sure. Realizing that you're being reactive sure. in a circumstance. Yeah. But I don't know if it's a question you can answer, but like, how did I go along for five minutes or eight, nine minutes on the phone with this person fighting and, and not become mindful <coughs> and then end up totally distressed being in an office where everybody else could hear me, making their situation unpleasant? How do you get it to. It's, a, it's amazing, isn't it? How. Easily we can get hooked into our old conditioning, reactive, and go off on a rant. And, and you know, only later in the day do we have any remorse about, oh, geez, not a skillful thing to do. But, you know, any of you who've, who've tried to sit down and watch your mind, you see, the mind is just lost in its own story most of the time. And, you know, periodically we come out for a breath of air and it's like, you know, and then we just jump back in and we're into this, you know, we, and most of us believe the story that our mind tells us. You know, this person's, you know, we have perception, this person's, you know, taking advantage of me, or da, 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 and, we, and we believe it. And that's what we're reacting to. It takes a lot. I was the yeah. one that pushed it. Yeah. You let them push it. Yeah. Yeah, you let them push it. Your mindfulness wasn't strong enough to catch the, the pain that you felt before you reacted. I've been doing meta meditation and it has, what the, the, the number one function it had is it has, the, it has strengthened my daily practice. It's good. It really has. Yeah. And, and it's very regular and it's every day. Yeah. Is, 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 the, is, is being able to function you know, in the samatha, in the concentration, Concentration or samadhi is a result of the continuity of your awareness. The more continuous your awareness in any activity, 
or in, in, in formal sitting practice or in any other activity. The more continuous your awareness, the more concentration or tranquility of mind and body you'll have. You had a question? Yeah. Like brutal honesty versus, you know, I don't know the words, but holding back. Yeah, yeah. So the comment is there seems to be a lot of gray area between truthfulness and right speech. There is, you know, and uh, let me give you a little fuller uh, right speech. Truthfulness is only one of five conditions for right speech. One. So in, in order to speak rightly, in in the Buddha's uh, in, in the Buddha's guidance, it requires yes that it be truthful, but secondly, it it should be spoken gently. You know, so that you're not using harsh words to speak the truth. Sometimes we have to say things that are true, but pretty hard to hear. So we want to say it gently. Even if it's true, and we can say it gently, it has to be coming from. A loving heart. We have to be in a loving space to be able, to, or at least a caring space, compassionate space, to be able to say it. Truthful, gently, loving. Timely. Timely, yeah. It has to be said at the right time. And the first one is, oh, it has to be beneficial. If the truth isn't beneficial, even if you can say it loving enough, why say it? Okay, well, that, just think, if, if everything you said had to meet those five criteria, truthful, uh, gently, lovingly, at appropriate time, and beneficial, be a quiet place. <laughs> but those are guidelines, huh? Those are guidelines to help you see uh, or to, to kind of map out how to say difficult things in a way that they can be heard to say them lovingly and whatnot. And then to, to exercise some restraint when you recognize, wow, it may be truthful, but boy, it's harsh. Maybe it's not. Maybe it's not. Maybe it can't be heard. Maybe it's not the right time to be saying that. And so it helps give you some further guidance, not just truthful or harsh. You know, there's a lot of other guidance there for right speech, all of which require that you pay attention, be mindful, have have awareness of the situation. <laughs> And it's hard because we talk so much, you know, we, we, and we, we don't have uh, so much mindfulness in talking, in speaking. Yeah. But I encourage you to, you know, consider those other parameters of uh, right speech and, and see if there's a way to, to um, fulfill more of them in your speaking. When I get home, I'm planning on uh, asking my wife which one she thinks is my strong suit and my weak suit to see if they line up. <laughs> Do you want her to be truthful? <laughs> Very gently, and she has to decide if it's beneficial. <laughs> you have to give her a little rap on right speech before you ask her, huh? I have one follow-up question, and that is um, my sister-in-law... <laughs> she is convinced that she has all these qualities and she drives me crazy <laughs> evidently you don't think she has all those qualities 
Enjoy it. <laughs> Is she a Buddhist? She said. Okay. Not with right speech, anyway, huh? Okay. Uh, I'm not speaking about your sister-in-law because I don't really know her. But when, generally when anyone uh, has a really high opinion of themselves kind of across the board, it, and it's, it's a little unrealistic, and I'm not speaking directly about her, but it's just not... It's just not a very subtle understanding, or not, it doesn't doesn't reflect much self understanding. Then that person is mostly suffering from delusion. You know, they're deluded. They just they just aren't, don't have an accurate finger on the pulse. You know, they just they're just not seeing things truthfully. Or you know, it's not that they're being dishonest. They just can't even see what's true. And so. When you, when you, and we know, we all know people like this. We all know people who, you know, can be angry as can be, and will deny it. Just say, "I'm not angry," you know, and they're just raging, you know, or you know, lying through their teeth or whatever, you know. And they don't know that; they're deluded. They don't, they don't recognize that they're being dishonest or they're being miserly or they're being untruthful or whatever. The only appropriate response, because we can't convince them otherwise. You can't. I mean, getting angry at them, you know, telling them off. Doesn't do a thing. It just makes your your relationship miserable. Is to have compassion. Delusion can only be dealt with with compassion. Not only, but you know, when when people are very deluded, you just have to have compassion for them because they don't see things correctly. They don't act correctly. In the in they don't act to overcome their confusions, delusions correctly. Delusion is a tremendous uh, source of suffering in in ourselves and in others. And the antidote to delusion is awareness. You want to be, you want to come out of delusion, or you want to, you want to, want to see your own delusions a little more. Is practice awareness training or mindfulness training, and you'll see more. You'll see more of your confusions, delusions, and you'll see it in others. And it's hard because we so believe the story that we're telling ourselves about ourselves and about others. We believe it. How many of you think that the narrator in your head is telling you lies? We don't. We think it's true. We think everything we see and say to ourselves is true. You know what? It's not. How are we going to know that? How are we going to recognize that and, and, and come out of that and begin to see things correctly? Practice. Bob? So if awareness is the antidote to delusion, what would be the antidote to aversion? Not that I have any of that. <laughs> There's a deluded... <laughs> no, Bob, I know Bob quite well. Um, all, all aversion is accompanied by delusion. All greed or attachment is accompanied by delusion. All delusion may or may not have aversion or attachment. You can be just restlessly deluded. You can be without attachment or aversion. You can be just doubtful. You just don't know what's going on, deluded. So uh, any form of delusion is addressed by developing or practicing awareness or, or, or presence of mind, recognition of the present moment's experience, the truth for you in the moment. 
aversion, of course, you know, you can practice loving kindness, you can practice patience. There's many things you can do for aversion. For uh, attachment or greed, you can practice generosity, you know, uh, right speech, certainly, uh, equanimity. There's many things you can practice to temper attachment or other practices to temper your aversion. But uh, they'll all require some degree of awareness, awareness training. That's why formal practice is so helpful, you know, because it addresses everything across the board. Formal practice, just sit down, pay attention. Try to pay attention. Even if you're just using the breath or sounds or body sensations, it, it develops the mental muscle of truthfulness to yourself, being truthful with yourself, acknowledging this is the way it is. My mind's a mess. My body hurts, whatever. And as that mental muscle of truthfulness, non-diluted truthfulness, gains strength, it doesn't just gain strength in observing the breath. It gains strength to be applied across every activity of your life. So a formal meditation practice addresses all of these uh, uh, skillful states of mind because it strengthens the mind to see the way things really are, whether you're generous or not, whether you're moral or not, whether you're patient or not. And that's when you can, you can recognize the opportunities for uh, cultivating any of these states of mind. Any further? Yeah, one last question. Uh, yeah, I said a question about renunciation. Yeah. Uh, so it kind of seems like you know, we kind of all have this self-image, you know, or self-conception of self. Sure. And, you know, we have it until we discover whatever Buddhist ideals, kind of stuff like emptiness and these concepts. And we try to disrupt the self. But it seems to kind of like in doing that a lot of the times you kind of want to distract it, then you've done, you know, you've been developed all these other kind of things. Like you've gone to college for this reason and you've had this career that developed these skills. So you have these kind of view of yourself that I have these skill sets and I, you know, if, if I'm going to destroy my sense of self, I'm going to kind of destroy my skill sets or something like that. And mm. Like how do you kind of, kind of renunciate um, your sense of self, but then kind of the stuff that was in your life that was positive. Goes with it. In there, but not necessarily yeah. conceive it in that sense of yeah. self way, even though yeah. it's been there your entire life. Yeah. So, did you generally hear the comment? I, it's quite long, but he's talking about how <clears throat> as we go through life, we, all of our experience reflects a sense. Thank you for listening. To learn how you can support the teachers and Dharma Seed, please visit dharmaseed.org slash donate.